morning. We're going to have, uh, before we get to the preach word this morning, we're going to have uh, some scripture reading and a time of prayer on this Palm Sunday. Amen? Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the 21st chapter of Matthew, and we will be reading verses 1 through 11. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen? Amen. I will too read a similar passage, Luke 19, verses 37 through 40, before we pray. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Let us pray. Blessed is the king of glory. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. This morning, Father, we give ourselves back to you as living sacrifices. Because over 2,000 so years ago, you entered in victory in the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, rang from the crowd. And we thank you 
that as we read through the scriptures, we see how you sacrificed, you demonstrated how much you really loved us by going to the cross on behalf of all those who would believe. So today, we just like to recommit ourselves to you. Thank you for this Lord's Day, this day that we can gather in person and those that are live streaming. Lord, in this city, um, in this state, and in this nation, airways and doors are open in the name of Jesus Christ because of your perfect sacrifice. So today we thank you for being our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us the privilege to draw near to you. That in this time of drawing near, we're receiving grace from you, mercy, and right now, Lord, in all of our um, individual ways, we need your help. So, Father, we thank you for this great privilege that prayer comes before the ministry of the word. Lord, in um, bittersweet, Lord, we lift up um, the Crowder family, um, Mr. DeCorey and Miss Andrea and their lovely children will be making a transition from Indy to Texas on Tuesday. So, Lord, we just, as your scripture says in Deuteronomy, we know that you're going to go before them. You're going to go with them. You are going to prepare the way. And we do pray, Lord God, that they have a gracious and safe travel. You allow them to get settled in, get themselves established. Um, that Mr. DeCorey and Miss Andrea um, will continue to love each other and love their children, get established in a place where they can worship you and honor you. And Lord, whatever you have in store for them, we pray that their light will so shine before men that when others see their good works, their new neighbors, they'll glorify you in heaven. And Father, our hearts are, are heavy with our pastor this morning and his entire family as they have um, lost his sister. Lord, I pray that we will join in and in interceding on their behalf that you give them the comfort um, that only you can give because you are um, the father of, of mercies, the God of all comfort. That you give them that peace that we read about that is that it surpasses all understanding. Lord, that you will give them that settled calmness, um, that inner peace, even as they um, deal with um, your will, your perfect will being done and Miss Felicia um, entering into um, the presence of the Lord this morning, that you will comfort them down here, heal down here, help them as they um, put together all that they have to put together um, for your honor and for your glory. Lord, we thank you so much for that great privilege that we have to intercede on behalf of others. Lord, there's so many that probably didn't make um, my list of prayers, but Lord, I'm sure as a growing body of believers, we know others um, that we can stand in behalf, stand in the gap for. 
So today we say hallelujah to your name because you've been so good to us, so faithful, so kind, so generous. Thank you, Lord, that whether we are present or absent, Lord, you have called us to walk so worthy of the calling. So, Lord, we lift up Elder Wright as he has, as we've heard him say before, he's stealed away from his family. He's got along with you. And you've been able to speak to his heart. And now, as he stands before your people, he's going to open up the Holy Scriptures. And the power of the Holy Spirit is going to move through him to proclaim, thus says the Lord. Lord, I pray that those who don't have a relationship with you that may hear this message, that they might be saved. And those of us, Lord, who know you, that today we might be revived again. Lord, so that immediately after hearing the word of the living God, the power of the Holy Spirit will be instructing us to get busy right now and applying what we hear. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we honor you for this great privilege to be able to draw near. Thank you, Lord, for the grace. Thank you for the mercy and thank you for the help that we have received during this time of need. In Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Elder Lander, for that. And something that you said that I, I want to lean on just a little bit, um, and I think it's sometimes lost on us. But we all come to church needing something. We come either needing to be redeemed or we come needing to be revived. So it does not matter whether you know Christ and have known him for years upon years or whether you don't know him and are just hearing about him for the very first time. We all stand in the need of God's word. Elder Lander, thank you for that reminder. And I think that is important, especially for the word that the Lord has given me <clears throat> for this morning, because it may sound like it is only for those who don't know Christ. But it does apply to those of us who say that we do as well. As always, um, I'm so grateful and thankful to God for this opportunity to stand before uh, the church family here and, and definitely with a heavy heart with uh, Pastor and his family and the loss of his sister. Please uh, continue, as Elder Lander mentioned, to keep them in your prayers, uh, and not just Pastor Costin, but the entire family uh, and, and nieces and nephews and um, even um, his father who is having to do what no parent wants to do, uh, and that is laid to rest another one of his children. So we always want to keep them in prayer as we move through this. And so uh, I do want to uh, also thank my wife and my girls, uh, as uh, Elder Lander said, as I pull away and kind of uh, had to quarantine myself, not because of any, vac uh, any virus, but because of needing to get into the word and 
and to pull this together. And thank you for their patience, as always, Karen, um, and uh, my good, good friend uh, is what I like to call her. So just for a few minutes on this Palm Sunday morning, uh, I'd like to ask a question in uh, the shape of my sermon title, and that is, is Jesus weeping over you? Is Jesus weeping over you? For our scripture, and you haven't turned there just yet, it's Luke chapter 19. Uh, On the handout, you'll have the entire context, verses 41 through 44, but uh, we will specifically be focusing on 41 and 42. And the aim for the sermon today is that we collectively would take inventory of our relationship with Christ and ask ourselves if how we respond to Jesus makes him weep over us. I want to read the scripture for this morning, and I'm going to read from the Living Bible translation. It's a little bit of a different translation than, uh, than I use, but I like the way they phrase it. Uh, and then you can turn to your translation as well. But there you will find these words starting in verse 41. But as they came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to cry. Eternal peace was within your reach, and you turned it down, he wept. And now it is too late. Your enemies will pile up earth against your walls and encircle you and close in on you and crush you to the ground and your children within you. Your enemies will not leave one stone upon another, for you have rejected the opportunity God offered you. Just by way of a little bit of of a light introduction, my wife about two weeks ago um, was in a fender bender. Somebody rear-ended her. She's fine, thankfully, but the car, the bumper, and all that kind of good stuff needed to be repaired. So we had to turn that in, and in return, we got a rental car. The rental car that we got is a cherry cherry red Jeep car. Um, I don't even know what kind it is, Wrangler, I guess is what it is, uh, that uh, they gave us. It's a four by four, uh, and uh, it's something we've never driven before, never have, have even wanted to drive before. You know, sometimes when you get in a rental car, you're kind of like, man, I wonder what they're going to give me because it may be an opportunity to drive something that you can never afford. That's real, thank you. So we get this car, Karen drives home in it, and it's like, oh, wow, this is not at all what we expected. She usually drives a Ford Explorer. They gave her something in like and kind, and they gave her this Jeep. And what we found out, we didn't know, right, as, as Karen was driving through and as we were moving through, she found out from a coworker of hers that happened which was interesting. We passed her coworker on the road. Her coworker has a bright yellow Jeep, same make, same model made a a motion to us. We didn't realize it. And and my wife texted her and found out that when you're driving in these Jeeps, there is a whole, I see some people uh, nodding, there's this whole culture of people who own Jeeps. There's secret hand signals, there's things they do 
if cars are in parking lots, they leave stuff in there and all these kinds of things. And it was interesting because as we were driving, before we, we kind of even knew how deep it went, we actually went on, on a trip to take my oldest daughter to visit a college. And as we were driving, we pulled up next to a, another car who pulled in and it was another Jeep. And when the wife got out, she looked us dead in the eye and was, you know, making eye contact. And, you know, I kind of nodded. And then even the husband turned and he kind of waved at us. And I said, man, that's we need to understand what is the secret here. Because we're driving around in this Jeep and folks are expecting us to, to respond in a certain way. And it was interesting as my oldest began to look online, she said, oh man, there's a, there's a hand signal. And I think it's, you, you kind of make kind of like a, a, almost like a, yeah, there's some people who are doing it. Yeah. And, 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 and all these things that you do. So, so, so it was interesting, right, to me as I thought about this. And especially in light of my sermon today, because on, from, from, from the outside looking in, right, we, we appear to be, for sure enough, Jeep owners. I mean, we were driving a Jeep. We were finding out the little hand signals of what to do when you're in a Jeep, right? We, we, we were moving at the, at the hotel in and out of, of the Jeep and, and being able to, thank you, and being able to then, um, uh, you know, come and go. And everywhere we came and went while we were out, we were in the Jeep. So if anybody from the outside looking at us would say, hey, look, there's some Jeep owners. And then even some other Jeep owners would see us and we would say, hey, what's going on? And they would say, hey, what's going on? You're a Jeep owner. I'm a Jeep owner. But in reality, we weren't Jeep owners. We were driving a Jeep. But we didn't have this deep down affinity for Jeeps. It, the funny thing about it is, is we're riding in this bright red Jeep that I'm sure some people saw and said, man, that's a nice car. On the inside, we were complaining about, or at least I was complaining about the leg room, and it didn't make sense why buttons were here and, and all this stuff. But from the outside looking in, some folks thought, look at that family, Jeep owners. How you doing, fellow Jeep owners? And what will we do? We're doing fine. We're not going to explain to them that we're not really Jeep owners. And it made me think that that same kind of situation is prevalent in the church. We have some folks coming to church. They've learned the hand signals. They understand the culture, but deep down inside, they're not really invested in, in Christ. From the outside looking in, they look like they're down for whatever because they understand the culture, they understand the lingo, they understand the hand signals. They, everywhere we see them, they're... they're to keep the analogy going, driving in their Jeep. Hmm. But they're not Jeep owners. They may only be renting. May only be passing the time. And I think, right? 
that even though we stand on Palm Sunday and we can get caught up in kind of the pomp and circumstance of these high holy days, so to speak, in, in church city, that if we're not careful, this even becomes just a hand signal, just part of, of church culture. This is just what we do. I can remember growing up, you know, we used to get the little cross pinned on us of the palm branches. And it's just what you do because we go to church. But how many of us hmm, really deep down inside are fully engaged, fully bought in? Well, I think that this is what's burdening the heart of Jesus even as he comes into Jerusalem. And just by way of reminder, let's get this mental picture. And I know we've read a lot of scripture here, but I, wanna, I really want to paint the picture here so that we get in the text. Riding into Jerusalem, right, Jesus looks out upon the great city of David. And he begins to weep. And this contrast of emotions, right, this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but Jesus weeping cannot be lost on us. Hmm. Think about it. As Jesus gets closer to the towns of Bethany and Bethphage, right, he sends two of his disciples ahead and he tells them to go into town and to get him and find him and bring him a colt, a donkey, and that they will find this donkey tied up and when they enter into the village. And he says, look, if the owner of the donkey gives you any trouble, just let them know that the Lord has need of it. So the disciples, they head into the village. And as they go into the village, they find a colt tied up, just like Jesus said. And guess what? As they begin to untie that colt, just like Jesus said, the owner comes out and says, hold up, guys, what are you doing? And they explain to him, just like Jesus told them to do, that the Lord has need of it. And the owner allowed them to bring that coat back to Jesus. And when they bring the coat back to Jesus, what do they do? They then take off their coats and place it on the back of the coat so that Jesus can then ride upon it. And as he makes his way from Bethany, into, from Bethany and Bethphage into Jerusalem, along the road, get this image now, people begin spreading their coats out in the road so that the donkey that Jesus is riding on can proceed into town on their coats. Hmm. And as if that wasn't enough, they begin shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> this image, this moment of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, the city of David, it isn't because Jesus is tired, right, of walking. It isn't because uh, the most efficient way to get from Bethany and Bethphage into Jerusalem is to ride on the donkey. But to any astute uh, Old Testament uh, scholar, these folks who were there witnessing this, these men and women, they would have recalled to mind very likely the Old Testament prophecies that promised the Messiah, the king, when they saw Jesus coming in on the donkey riding into Jerusalem, they would have been reminded of the words of the prophet Zechariah. When Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, O my people, shout with joy, for look, your king is coming. He is the righteous one. 
the victor, yet he is lowly riding on a donkey's colt. So get this in your mind. Here we have Jesus riding in on a donkey, leaving Bethany and Bethphage behind, heading into Jerusalem. Now, if you pick this up in the reading, Bethany and Bethphage were near the Mount of Olives. So more than likely, as he was leaving Bethany and Bethphage, he was coming down from an elevated place into Jerusalem. And it says that the people were throwing their coats in front of him so that the donkey could walk on it as he was moving into Jerusalem. They were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And literally, the words of the prophet Zechariah were coming and being fulfilled in this moment. And as Jesus makes this descent into Jerusalem, down from Bethany and Bethphage, as Jerusalem comes into his view, in the midst of the people shouting, in the midst of this prophecy being fulfilled, Luke tells us that when he sees Jerusalem, Jesus begins to weep. He weeps for the city of David. He weeps for Zion. And Jesus isn't weeping because this is about to be a rough week for him. He's not weeping because of the shame and the humiliation and the betrayal that awaits him. He's not weeping because of the torture and the death that he will be facing. No, in fact, Jesus himself tells us very clearly why he's weeping in verses 41 and 42. So let's walk through this very closely. And carefully, the first thing we see in verse 41 is that Jesus is weeping for Jerusalem because eternal peace was within their reach. As Jesus looked out upon Jerusalem, it broke his heart that they were so close and yet so far away. He was overwhelmed with emotion when he reflected upon how Jerusalem, who had been given so many advantages, failed to capitalize on those advantages. Now, some of you may be wondering and may be thinking and asking yourself, what advantages did Jerusalem have that they failed to capitalize upon? Well, I'm glad that you asked because, for starters, there is no site in history no, 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 no site in history, no city in history that is more important when it comes to God's revelation to man and his divine acts of redemption than Jerusalem. And here's just a couple of things I'm going to run down for you. One, it was the royal city, the capital of the only kingdom that God himself had established among men. It is the site of the temple where the very presence of the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, Jehovah, dwelt among men. It is the city of the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Nahum, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. In the Bible, it is referred to as Zion. It's also called the city of David, the city of God. It's called the city of Jehovah, the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of Jehovah of hosts, the holy mountain of Jehovah, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. God himself refers to it as my city. 
and my holy mountain. Let me keep pushing at this thing. Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's where Jesus as a baby, when he was brought to the temple, he was recognized and he was praised by Simeon and Hannah, the prophetess, for being Israel's salvation. It's also the place where Jesus, again in the temple at age 12, is found chopping it up with the teachers. It's the area where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, where John the Baptist declared, behold, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and where the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and God announces from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It's also where Jesus, during the Feast of Booths, declares that if any man thirsts, let them come to him and drink. It's where Jesus forgives the woman who's caught in adultery and he shames the Pharisees when he tells them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. It's where Jesus heals the man who had been blind from birth. His disciples said, uh, Master, what sin did this man commit such that he is blinded from birth? Or what sin did his parents commit such that he is blind from birth? Jesus says, neither. This man is blind so that God's power could be manifest in him. Hmm. Now, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And that took some time, but it was necessary because... And don't be offended, but most of us don't have an appreciation for Jerusalem. Not really, not really. Yeah, yeah, we know it's in the Bible, and we, we know a lot of Bible things happened in Jerusalem. If you were playing Bible trivia and someone said, name a city, Jerusalem would be the one that would probably roll off your tongue. Bethlehem, maybe right after. But most of us, right, haven't been there. Most of us won't be going there. And if we were honest, most of us couldn't point it out on a map if our lives depended on it. But this city that stands so prominently in the pages of Scripture, this city that even to this day is considered a sacred place, not just in Christianity, but in Judaism and in Islam, this city that is featured uniquely in God's redemptive historical arc, this city is the city that Jesus declares was so close and yet so far. This city is the city that had eternal peace within their reach and didn't grab hold of it. In other words, they were close to Christ, but they weren't in Christ. Oh, yeah, they knew the history of Jerusalem. Hmm. They knew what God had done. They knew the scriptures of the Old Testament, what the prophets had foretold. They went to the temple and they offered up the right sacrifices at the right time. Uh, they heard Jesus preach some sermons when he was passing through. They saw him perform some miracles when he was in town, but they never reached out and fully embraced Christ as the one who could bring them eternal peace between a holy, righteous God and sinful mankind. And this brings me to my very first takeaway, and that is, just like Jerusalem, some of us are making Jesus weep because <clears throat> we are close to him, but we haven't fully embraced him. And we confuse knowing Christianity with knowing Christ. 
Hear me, hear me. What do I mean? What do I mean? I, what I mean is, is that we've grown up in church. We, we, we've been around church. We, we've got church swag in our homes. We, we know how to talk church. We know how to act church. We know what days we better be at church. And, and some of us even know church stories and we know some church songs, but we don't know Christ. Oh, yeah, we know some things about him. We know he was born in a manger. We know he was a carpenter, a teacher. He was crucified, but we don't know him. Yeah, yeah, we, we appreciate some aspects of him, that he was kind and he was humble, uh, and that he cares about the less fortunate, but we don't know him. We find some good points and some good takeaways from his teachings as excellent examples in his parables, but we don't know him and the challenge for you and me is to push through religion and to strive towards relationship so continuing in verse 41 we also see that Jesus is weeping for Jerusalem not only because they had eternal peace within their reach right but because they turned it down and we've got to get this. Jesus is saying the reason why Jerusalem didn't embrace the eternal peace that he offered isn't because they didn't understand it. It isn't because he didn't preach enough messages. It isn't because he didn't perform enough miracles. It isn't because uh, it wasn't presented to them and offered to them, but it's because Jerusalem turned it down. They looked at Jesus, they sized him up, they sized his message up, and they decided they didn't need eternal peace with God. At least not how Jesus was offering it. And they got real casual with Christ and just dismissed him altogether. Now let's pause for a moment and think about the thought process that goes into turning something down. So when you and I turn something down, when something is offered to us and, and we're presented with the option of receiving that thing and we turn it down, we're making one or more of the following judgments. One, I don't like what's being offered. Two, I don't want what's being offered. Or three, I don't need what's being offered. So for the first one, right, if I'm saying I don't like what's being offered, if I'm turning it down because I don't like what's being offered, I'm saying that what you're offering doesn't fit my taste. It doesn't suit my preferences. It, it, it doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't ring my bell, so to speak. For the second one, if, I, if I'm turning it down because I don't want it, what's being offered, then I'm saying that I may be looking for something, but what you're offering isn't what I'm looking for. And for the third one, if I say I turned it down because I don't need what's being offered, what I'm saying then is that I've already got something that checks off all those boxes in my life. I'm good. I don't need anything else. So if we apply that to the text, it's like Jerusalem looked at Jesus, the son of God, and said, oh, you're offering eternal peace with God. Mm, I don't really like that. It doesn't suit my taste. Oh, you're offering a new life free from guilt and shame of sin. Mm, I, I don't really want that. That's not what I'm looking for. 
Oh, you're offering forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. I don't really need that. I've already got that covered. I'm good. And I know when we lay it out like that, it sounds silly. It sounds ridiculous. After all, who in their right mind would turn down eternal peace with God? Who in their right mind would turn down a new life free from guilt and free from the shame of sin? Who in their right mind would turn down forgiveness from sins, past, present, and future? Well, this brings me to my second takeaway. And just like Jerusalem, some of us are making Jesus weep because we keep turning him down. Week after week. We're coming in here or we're watching online. We're hearing the word of God. We're feeling the pull of the Holy Spirit, but we keep turning Christ down. Storms and situations in our lives that we, that we know God got us through, but we keep turning Christ down. He's offering us peace with God, but I act like I don't need it, even though I know something is missing in my life, right? He's offering me a new beginning in him, but I keep pushing him away even though I'm racked with regret about the decisions and the choices that I've made in my life. He's offering forgiveness and redemption from all of our sins and mistakes, but I act like I don't really need it even though I'm burdened by the guilt and the shame. And I keep turning him down. Some of us keep turning him down because we know that in order for me to embrace him, it means I'm going to have to let go of something else. And instead of letting that go and fully embracing the God who can give us peace, who can change us into new creatures and who can forgive our sins, past, present, and future, we decide we want to hang on to whatever that is. And it's a, different, it's a different thing for each one of us. But we keep turning Christ down. So we've seen that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, one, because they were close to Christ but didn't embrace Christ, two, because they were casual with Christ and just kept dismissing him, turning him down. Lastly, in verse 41, we see that Jesus is weeping for Jerusalem because now it was too late. After not embracing him and repeatedly turning him down, Jesus reveals that it was too late. So what does this mean? What does this mean when Jesus says it's too late? Well, in the immediate context, in verses 42 through 44, Jesus begins to prophesy. And he reveals that because they didn't embrace him, Jerusalem would be attacked and the temple destroyed. And in 70 AD, in 70 AD, sorry, the Romans did just that. Now, to our modern ears, this may seem a bit spiteful. Seems a bit harsh. Jesus says, well, since you rejected me, guess what's going to happen to you? The Romans are going to come in and destroy you. Your enemies are going to destroy you, and nothing's going to be left. But before we go there, we need to keep in mind a couple of things. One, recall, this is why we went through that big, long list. Jerusalem wasn't just another city. But Jerusalem was God's city. 
his temple was there, and by extension, his presence was there. His people lived there, and they were to be waiting and watching and anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. But instead, the city that should have been overjoyed at his coming would be the city that would cry out, crucify him by the end of the week. But still, what does Jesus mean when he says it is too late? Well, I believe that Jesus is communicating two things here. The first thing that Jesus is communicating when he says that it would be too late for Jerusalem is that it's too late for Jerusalem to reverse the judgment, the punishment coming to them at the hands of the Romans because they've rejected him as Messiah. But secondly, and more weighty, more sobering, is that it could also be eternally too late for some to make a different choice. Because those who would have never accepted him and end up losing their lives in that pending attack from the Romans, huh, would have lost their chance for eternity to choose Christ. Brothers and sisters, this one should weigh heavy on our hearts. And this brings me to my third and final takeaway, and that is that just like Jerusalem, some of us are making Jesus weep because of our refusal to embrace him and our continued turning him down is making our hearts calloused towards Christ. He keeps calling out to you, and you keep ignoring him. He keeps tugging at your heart, and you keep pulling away. He keeps trying to grab your attention, and you keep looking in the other direction. And each time that you do, you find it becomes easier and easier to just ignore him. It becomes easier and easier to pull back away from him. It becomes easier and easier to look away from him. And you've effectively created a callous over your heart. And if you're not careful, you'll find up, you'll look up and find out that it's too late. And while at one time you were choosing not to respond to Christ, you'll find that you become unable to respond to Christ. In conclusion, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus describes in verses 42 through 44 the consequences that await Jerusalem because they didn't embrace him, because they kept turning him down, and because they developed calluses over their heart. And you may be sitting there thinking, man, what kind of Palm Sunday message is this? Huh. Well, I'll tell you what kind of Palm Sunday message it is. It's basically the same message in essence that Jesus is giving. Remember, he utters these words as he makes his way into Jerusalem. See, when we think about this, we like to think of ourselves as the one shouting Hosanna in the highest. We like to think of ourselves as the ones throwing our coats down in front of him as he comes into the city. But we might need to pause step back from the culture of Christianity, the tradition of Christianity, and ask ourselves, am I the one shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? Or am I the one that Jesus is weeping over? 
because I was close to him and didn't embrace him. Because although I had many opportunities, I kept turning him down and was casual with him. And now I'm flirting with getting a hard heart, a calloused heart that can't respond to him. The second thing you may be asking yourself is where's the hope in the text? Where is the ray of sunshine in this text? Where is the get me on my way (laughs) in this text? Well, the hope is found in the fact that despite Jerusalem's failure to embrace Jesus, Jesus still continued down the road from Bethany to Bethphage. Despite Jerusalem's rejection of him, Jesus still set his face towards Calvary. And despite calloused hearts that had turned him down over and over and over, Jesus was still obedient, even until the point of death on the cross. And in the same way, despite our failures to embrace him, despite our continued rejections of him, and despite our own attempts to harden our hearts towards him, he still stands, waiting, willing, and ready to freely give us eternal peace with God, to freely give us a new life free from guilt and from shame of sin, to freely give us forgiveness from sins past, present, and future. So church family, is Jesus weeping over you? Or is he rejoicing over you? I said at the very beginning of this, Elder Lander said it too. There's an opportunity to be redeemed or to be revived anytime we come underneath the word of God. This message isn't just for those who don't know Christ. This message is also for those who maybe know him and don't know him, know him. Who have become casual with him. Who feel like because we go to all the high holy church days, we're good with him. This is an opportunity for us to ask ourselves to take some inventory, some introspection. As Jesus looks out at my life. Is he rejoicing over it or is he weeping over it? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we come acknowledging and admitting that Jesus, as you look out over our lives, you have shed tears. We know God that there are times when we've been close to you, but we have not embraced you. And we've been comfortable with that. We know, God, that there have been times when we've been casual with you, knowing that you are calling us to go deeper in you, calling us to walk holy and righteous, calling us to a more mature walk with you. But we keep turning you down, knowing, God, that each time that we do, we're building up some callousness in our hearts where it will take even more the next time to bring us to a place of repentance. God, we 
do not want you to look out over our lives and to weep because of something that was in our grasp that we did not take advantage of. God, let us not be comfortable with church culture, believing that that is the same as knowing Christ. God, shine a light in each one of our hearts. Show us, God, whether we know you or if we just know of you. All these things I ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If you are here and you feel a tug on your heart for whatever reason, I don't want to narrow it and just act like this time is only for those who don't know Christ. But if you're feeling the tug on your heart in any way, please see me, see one of the elders, see somebody, talk to somebody. And they can get you to the right person. If you're at home watching and you're feeling a tug on your heart, there'll be some information at the end of the broadcast and you can send them in a message. You can call. You can get in touch with the church. Somebody will pray with you, will talk with you, will walk you through understanding what it means to know that you know that you know him. Amen? Amen.